Good morning. Certainly is a pleasure to be gathered together here once again on the Lord's Day. Uh, for those that may not know me, my name is Brandon Reed. Oops, got a little spill here. Uh, my name is Brandon Reed, and I have the pleasure of serving as one of the pastors here with Christ Covenant Fellowship. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Thank you for visiting with us. We are uh, blessed that you have chosen to worship here with us today. If there are any questions that you may have, you need anything, find myself, Pastor Tyler, Pastor Gabe, or even one of our wonderful members would be sure or be happy to assist you uh, in any way that they can. Listen, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we've been in a series the last several weeks in the gospel according to John. This morning we will begin chapter 2. We will go through verses 1 through 12. I'll give you a second to get there. <clears throat> Listen, if you don't have a Bible as well, there are a few on this table back here in the corner. Go ahead and grab one. If necessary, I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And uh, I just want to say, even before I get started, that this text has really challenged me this week. It's spoken to me in some deep and profound ways. And even in my time of study, there are certain points in this sermon that and God is really speaking directly to me. So I'll be actually preaching more to myself than I am to each of you. It's very challenging, very profound, but a glorious, glorious text before us this morning. So I'm excited for this time, thankful for God's work already. Uh, so let's read John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And it reads, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have an incredible task before me to rightly divide your word. Father, that's something I cannot do on my own accord. So 
God, I ask that your spirit would rest upon me, that God, you would be at work in and through me this morning, mainly to glorify your name. But through the preaching of your word, God, I pray that your people would be challenged, yet encouraged. And Father, that above all, Jesus Christ would be glorified, that we would see his majesty on display through these verses, and that those of us that know you would be compelled to live for you, and those that don't would see you for the very first time and surrender their lives to the glorious Savior that is Christ Jesus. And God, again, I ask that you would be glorified in our midst today. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. That's true what they say. Seeing is believing. Oftentimes we're told something, especially something extravagant or unexpected or unusual, and it's hard for us to believe it until we see it. I think about this a lot when we think about kids. It's sometimes hard for kids to trust. I think about my two-year-old, Marigold, who some of you have had the pleasure of meeting. Marigold loves oatmeal. One thing that Marigold's learned about oatmeal is it's very hot when it comes off the stove. So sometimes when I try to feed it to her, she won't take it because she thinks it's hot, and so she's scared. So what does daddy do to try to convince her to take it? Well, daddy takes a bite first. So I'll eat it, and then she sees and believes, right? She says, okay, daddy ate it. He's alive still. It's okay. So I'm going to try it too. So Marigold sees daddy try it, and Marigold believes enough to eat it. Now, she still might hate it, but at least she's tried it. Right? She's seen and she believes. That's a constant theme that will run throughout the gospel according to John, this idea of seeing and believing. You see, the gospel of John is often referred to as the gospel of belief. You see, this apostle records the life and ministry of Jesus Christ for a specific purpose. And we find that purpose found in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And it reads, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. You see, as an eyewitness to Christ Jesus, one who walked with him during his earthly ministry, John records this gospel this gospel with a strategic purpose in mind. His purpose for writing these things is so that the glory and majesty of Christ would be seen, so that we would see Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And by seeing him in the appropriate light, we would believe and be saved. You see, this is all about pointing to the glory of Christ Jesus. Christ's glory is the line upon which all of this hangs. The text before us this morning is an unmistakable display of Christ's deity and power, and it's for accomplishing that very purpose. See, John wants his readers to behold the Lamb of God. So what does he do? He continues to build his case here. He continues to compile his evidence, right? He continues to present testimony about who Christ Jesus is. So he's already given us the testimony of John the Baptist. Last week, we have the conversion of the first disciples. Here, John provides us with further evidence. This time, the evidence is Christ's own works. 
You see, he turns from revelation of Christ as the Messiah from words to now works to now miraculous signs. You see, as we look at verse 12 in John chapter 2, we look at these first 12 verses, I should say. There's three things that are worth our discussion this morning. Three things that I want to use as subjects, as a heading. If you're taking notes, these will be our three headings, our three points. And number one will be the commitment of Christ. First thing we will notice is the commitment of Christ. Number two will be the purifying work of Christ. The purifying work of Christ. Number three will be the all-satisfying role of Christ. The all-satisfying role of Christ. See, as we examine this encounter, my hope is that we would ultimately see the deeper meaning behind this miracle, that this sign, this miracle would reveal to us the excellencies of Christ. I want to see the meaning in the miracle. I want us to see the purpose in this provision. I want us to see the significance in this sign. My prayer is through the Holy Spirit that as he works in this place today and through the preaching of this text, that this would be a benefit to every single person in this room. First, to the believer in this room, that I want you to see the glories of Christ, and I hope that the Lord makes his majesty and his glory alive to you, that it's not just stagnant or mundane, but you're reminded of this glorious Savior that has purchased your freedom, and that you're compelled, again, to go into your areas of influence, in your home, in your communities, at work, with your family members, wherever you might be, that you're compelled to make him known. You're reminded of who Jesus is. And to the unbeliever in this room, my hope and prayer is that you would see Christ Jesus for the very first time. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of his word, through walking through this miraculous sign, you would see the saving glory of Jesus Christ and surrender your life to him today, if you haven't done so. That's my aim. That's my goal. So with that in mind, let's work through these verses together. Point number one, we see the commitment of Christ Jesus. So here chapter two begins by giving us a bit of insight on the timeline of these events. It says, on the third day. Now that refers back to the previous passage and Jesus's encounter with Philip and Nathaniel. You see, John has given us several indicators throughout chapter one. He keeps saying over and over again, on the next day, and on the next day, and on the next day. This is simply giving us a reference for time. This is letting us know that this is kind of taking place within the span of seven days. So here we are, about three days removed from that last encounter with Philip and Nathaniel. And on that day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, Cana was a small town. It was located about nine miles north of Nazareth. And the text tells us that here at this wedding encounter that Jesus' mother was there, and that Jesus was also invited to this wedding with his disciples. Now, the fact that Jesus was there and that his mother is there as well, that they were all invited to this wedding, uh, tells us that this was probably a wedding for a, a family member of Jesus or maybe a really close friend of his family. Again, since Cana was so close to Nazareth, and that's where Jesus was, was from, it only makes sense that these are probably some folks 
that they knew. Not only that, but just logically, you don't invite people to weddings that, that you don't know. Or maybe you do, I don't know. I, don't, I didn't invite anybody to my, my wedding that I don't know, but it just makes sense. These are some people that have an intimate relationship with Jesus and his family. And it is believed that Mary, Jesus' mother, had some role in organizing this wedding. She was kind of serving in some capacity here at this event, which is why she tries to solve the issue of the lack of wine, right? So when the wine runs out, that's why she panics and tries to rectify this situation. It is believed she had some sort of servant role, some role in planning this ceremony. So verse 3 says that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, before I go on, I think it's important for us to understand something here. Wine was a staple drink in the ancient Near East. So because of the warm climate and the lack of refrigeration, like fruit juice, fruit juice would naturally just go through this fermentation process, and it would result in a drink that would produce intoxication. However, to avoid inebriation or intoxication, it would be heavily diluted. Oftentimes, it would be cut to about one-third to one-tenth of its strength. So wine in the ancient world was very different from wine that we have today as far as it pertains to its alcoholic content. It would have taken a lot of this wine for someone to become intoxicated. Now, for celebrations and festivals, people would drink wine, right? It was customary. That was part of the culture. They would drink this diluted beverage together, and they would celebrate, right, at weddings and festivals and all of these wonderful celebrations. Now, this was, again, this very diluted beverage. Now, however, they had what they would refer to as strong drink, which was an undiluted alcoholic beverage, and consuming that was indeed frowned upon. Now, I think it's important to say this up front. This is not Jesus Christ condoning drunkenness or intoxication. This isn't your go-to verse so you can run to the bar, okay? Can we get that out of the way? Okay, a couple of y'all are with me. All right, listen, there is nothing in this text that would suggest that Jesus Christ was drinking himself or was inebriated, or even that the wedding guests were drunk or inebriated. This wedding is indeed a celebratory occasion. It's a wonderful event. But assuming that this was just a drunken, uh, debaucherous event is, is simply speculation. That's not what the text tells us. So in that day and time, weddings were these massive occasions, right? It was considered this huge social event. It was a really big deal. In fact, wedding celebrations in that day and time could last almost a week. They could last up to a week. I mean, it's a huge deal. Now, here's the thing about weddings that's different from our day and time. The groom was expected to pay for everything. He was expected to su supply everything for the wedding to prove that he was competent and that he was capable of providing for his bride. Yet here we see that this groom is in quite the predicament. He's facing a major crisis because he's let the wine run out. This could have been very embarrassing for this gentleman and his family, right? They would have looked at him as an incompetent individual. He didn't even have the ability to plan accurately for the number of guests that were coming to his wedding. This could have really tarnished his reputation. 
So when Mary comes to Jesus and she says, look, the wine has run out, we have to understand why this is such a big deal. We have to understand why this is so detrimental. Now, although this is indeed a devastating and embarrassing failure on the groom's part, Jesus' response to Mary makes it seem like it's not a big deal to him. He's not really concerned about this. I mean, if we're right to believe that this wedding is one of his family members and close friends, then why in the world does Jesus respond the way that he does to Mary? Let's look at verses 3 and 4. And it says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I think it's important for us to ask ourselves this question first. Why does Mary go to Jesus? Why does she ask him, right? Why does she come to him with this problem? And I think there are really two trains of thought here is reading through this text and studying from several different commentators. There are different assumptions on why Mary would come to Jesus here. But there are many, first of all, that believe that she was expecting him to do something divine, that she was expecting him to work some sort of miracle. I mean, after all, she knew who he was. She knew what the angels had told her about her son. She had watched him grow in wisdom and stature. She had watched his perfect, sinless life. She knew he was the son of God. She knew he had the ability. So maybe she is indeed coming to him saying, hey, I need you to do something here. That certainly is plausible. That is one train of thought. The other train of thought would be that, so tradition tells us at this time that Joseph, Jesus's earthly father, was deceased by this time. So it is believed that Mary had come to become or grown to become very dependent on her son, Jesus, right? He was, as a widow, she had leaned and depended on him to solve many of the problems in her life. She was just used to trusting Jesus, to coming before him with, in times of crisis. So whether she believed he would do something divine or not, she certainly knew who she could turn to in difficult times to her incredibly capable son, and what a wonderful son he would be to have. Incredibly useful, right? Incredibly resourceful. He could solve all of my issues, all of my problems. Why wouldn't I come to my son? I mean, he's the son of God, for goodness sake. I can ask him whatever I need. So what, whatever you believe there, that, that's beside the point. Mary comes to him with this issue. She says, I need some help here. And what does Jesus say to her? He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, that may seem abrupt to you. That may seem very harsh, a very sharp rebuke here. I mean, why is he addressing his mother this way? Why is he calling her woman? Hey, listen, side note, to the kids in the room, do not address your mother this way, okay? So when you go home and she says, son, your room is a mess, woman, what does that have to do with me? Hey, man, I mean, you do what you want. I'm 41 years old, and I wouldn't dare talk to my mother that way still. So you can't really get away with, you can't do what Jesus did. I wouldn't suggest it. Anyway, so this may feel, again, very sharp, very harsh, but Jesus isn't being rude here. While he addresses her as woman, that isn't impolite. It's just not intimate, right? Jesus isn't being rude to her. He's not sinning here. It's kind of like addressing a woman as ma'am. Right? Jesus isn't sinning against her. He's not being rude. Jesus is doing something specific here. So then the question again is, what? What is he doing? Why the stiff arm here? Why does he rebuke his mother in this way? What, what's with this response? 
So what Jesus is doing here, we need to really pay attention to this. He's essentially putting distance between himself and his mother, right? He's letting her know that the dynamic of their relationship is different now. Things would no longer be as they had always been, for he is totally about his father's business. And I'm not talking about Joseph and carpentry. He's about his heavenly father's business. So Jesus rebuking his mother here is kind of signifying the beginning of his earthly ministry. He's putting any human commitments or influence or persuasion in the rear view. He's marching to the cross. He has a greater purpose in front of him. He was focused on the mission that God had given him. He couldn't be deterred or persuaded or hindered by human or earthly relationships, even that of his mother who had given birth to him, who had raised him all those years in Nazareth and cared for him greatly. But his time was approaching. He was committed to the glory of his father. Listen, Mary as his mother could not leverage her status as his family to manipulate or persuade him. Brothers and sisters, this reminds us of a glorious truth, one that we need to pay attention to. Listen, there is no inside track to Jesus. There's no shortcuts to the Messiah, right? Bloodlines, ancestry, proximity, none of these things get us greater access to Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus' mother and his brothers, his earthly family were no more deserving of his grace and his attention and his salvation simply because they were his relatives. Jesus provides us with great truth. He makes this plain in Matthew chapter 12. When he says this, it's Matthew chapter 12, verses uh, 46 through 50. Jesus says this, or it says this, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Verse 49, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister, and mother. Friends, we come to Christ through faith, not family. Through faith, not family. And guess what? This is actually good news, right? Just as your bloodline doesn't get you any greater access to Christ, it won't keep you from accessing Christ either. I don't care how messed up your family is. I don't care how lost they are. I don't care how far they are from the Lord. They can't stop you by faith from coming to Jesus Christ. There's freedom in Christ alone, and we come to him by faith alone. Again, what Jesus is demonstrating here is his commitment to his heavenly Father. See, Jesus had a singular focus. He was focused on fulfilling the purpose for which he had come. Listen, Jesus' commitment was to God the Father. Brothers and sisters, I'd ask you, where is your commitment? Where is our commitment? Are we devoted to the glory of God and his divine purposes for our lives, despite how it may impact some of your earthly relationships? Or are we constantly entangled in these trivial affairs? Are we constantly focused on things that don't matter, that are taking us away from the things that God is calling us to do? Are we focused on bringing glory to the king? Or is our commitment elsewhere? 
And I think this is a great reminder for us right here to evaluate our own priorities, to examine the things that we're committed to. There's so many things for us to be consumed with, to be distracted by. Listen, as those who have been saved and set apart for the glory of God, that, that should be our priority. That should be our commitment, is making him known and bringing him glory, telling the world of his wonderful works and deeds. So again, I'd ask, are we committed to that? Is that me? Is that us? Is that who we are? If not, now's a good time to stop and to really refocus, to reorient ourselves on what God has called us to do as his people. Let's be committed to him and his glory, just as Jesus was. See, Jesus says to his mother that my hour has not yet come. And we're going to hear this phrase quite a bit through the gospel of John. This is Jesus referring to his death and his glorification that would come through the cross. See, here we are again introduced to this theme that will be consistent throughout this gospel is the death that Jesus is approaching. So he's living with the cross in view here. This is his reason for maintaining distance in those relationships because he had a divine appointment. And henceforth, he's marching to the cross, growing ever closer to this time of death. So one is who is solely committed to the Father's plan of salvation. He had no time to be hindered by things that would deter from that plan of salvation. See, Christ was faithful to God's purpose according to God's divine timetable established before the foundations of the world. So we're going to get into this a little bit more, but this miracle that Jesus performs, it's not just, it's not flippant. It's not just because. There's a purpose here. We're going to talk about that here a little bit more. So we understand that Christ is committed to God's glory, and this will reveal a bit of his glory. But listen, his glory is fully revealed when he goes to the cross. His death and resurrection is his glory fully on display. This, significant, this sign, while significant, isn't a full revelation of Christ's glory. It's just a glimpse. And I want to talk about actually what that represents. So that'll bring us to point number two, which is the purifying work of Christ. Let's look at verses five through seven. And it says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So even though Jesus essentially stiff arms his mother here, she's not, she's not swayed by that. She's, not, she's undeterred, I should say. Because she still comes and says, hey, do whatever he tells you. So she's still kind of got this expectation here. She may not know what Jesus is going to do, but she knows that he will act in some way. She's totally satisfied leaving this situation in the hands of Christ. Here's another great place for us to pause and make some personal application. You see, Mary was content with leaving this matter to Christ. My question is, are we trusting Christ this way? Are we content leaving things in his hands? Are you trusting Christ like that? Are you at peace with leaving situations to him, bringing your 
fears, your anxieties, your burdens, and your doubts, and simply laying them at his feet and allowing him to do what he will? Are you comfortable praying that the will of God be done and then resting in just that? Are we trusting Christ this way? Now, I want to offer a disclaimer here. I'm not saying that as Christians we just sit on our hands and do nothing. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, are you trusting that God is infinitely capable to handle your situations even when you cannot? Do you believe in him that way? Mary exercises a certain level of trust here, a certain level of faith saying, I don't know what he's going to do, but just do whatever he tells you. I don't know how he's going to act in this situation. Hey, but I'm just leaving it to him. I trust in him. I believe in him. See, verse 6 tells us that as we continue on, at the site of this wedding, there were these six stone jars, these six stone water jars, and they were used for the uh, rites of purification, right? So what it was is these large jars, they would fill them with water, and then they would use them to cleanse themselves, right? It was part of the Jewish custom, uh, first century Judaism. They had all of these cleansing rituals. So the reason they would use stone jars rather than clay jars is they felt like that would keep the water a little bit more pure, keep it from becoming unclean. So they would take these jars of water and they would wash themselves, right? If you read through the Old Testament, we understand. If if you've read it, um, you can read through the Old Testament. You see that there was these uh, rituals, these customs, these traditions that the nation of Israel had in place. Right? If, you were, if you came in contact with a dead body, you had to cleanse yourself right? before you could go amongst the people, before you could enter the temple. If you had some sort of illness, you had to show that you had recovered for a certain number of days, and then you'd have to be cleansed before you could enter the temple, before you could get around people. Right? They had all of these traditions. They would cleanse themselves before festivals, before celebrations, before they ate. Right? They would wash themselves continuously. That was just part of their tradition. And they would use these stone jars to store that water for washing. And verse 6 tells us that each of these jars had about 20 or 30 gallons of water. What does Jesus do? He tells them, hey, fill these jars with water. He tells them, fill them all the way up. So that, that would mean you're working with about 120 to 180 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. A lot of water. And verse 7 says that they filled them up to the brim. Now, this is not insignificant. I don't want you to miss this point when it says that they're filled to the brim. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from. Actually, we'll stop right there. We'll stop right there. It says, now that the water had become wine. Well, when in the world did that happen? Right Again, we see that the jars were filled to the brim with water. This means that there was no room to add anything else. So Jesus couldn't have pulled a fast one on him here and then went to his stash of wine that he had and just, well, let me just put that in the jars. There was no room for anything else to be added. The fact that they're completely filled to the brim shows us that something miraculous has happened. This is an unmistakable display of Christ's divine power. This is further evidence of Christ's deity because it shows his power to create. Only God can create from nothing. Only God is capable of this type of miraculous supernatural transformation. 
Listen, again, we have to see what's happening here. I want us to understand the importance of this sign. This isn't Jesus just showing off here. This isn't some cheap parlor trick that Jesus performs just so he can keep the party going. There's more happening here. And I want us to see that. Once again, this this has a great and deeper meaning, a real significance. There's purpose in this provision. You see where Israel had relied on all of these ritual washings for cleansing, where they had all of these customary traditions of purification and sacrifice and sin offerings and all of these things, Jesus is presenting to them something eternally significant, something fuller, more complete, something greater that will render all of these traditions, these purification rituals, obsolete. And Jesus, what he's presenting? His own blood. He's presenting himself here. That's what this sign is representing. You see, commentator D.A. Carson says it this way, the water represents the old order of Jewish law and custom, which Jesus was to replace with what? Something better. Brothers and sisters, this is alluding to the new covenant, right? Where we were under the law at one time, we are under grace now. And what is accomplished for us has been accomplished by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have to understand what that wine in those jars actually represents. It represents the blood of Christ that covers you and I. Amen, somebody. I hope that's good news this morning. I hope that's good news. This is the old covenant versus the new covenant, the law versus grace. Again, don't miss the message here. Jesus is showing us that men no longer need to rely on all of these rituals and these customs, but instead we are cleansed and covered by his blood. Jesus Christ is the ultimate purifier. All that was required in these ceremonial uh, rituals, all that was required in the law, it has all been fulfilled in Jesus 1 John 1, 7 tells us that the blood of Christ purifies us from all sins. Somebody say all. You know what the word all means? It means all. Every sin, past, present, future, all of them purified by the blood of Christ. He's covered us completely. See, what Jesus shows us here through this sign is that he is just infinitely better. He's just greater. If you've ever sat down and studied the book of Hebrews, that's what it's all about. The supremacy of Christ. The better priest, the better Moses, the better prophet, greater than Melchizedek. Right? He's ushered in this new and better covenant by his blood. Right? As we look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 through 14, again, I'll read it for us. You can write that down and Go back to us, go back to it later. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 gives us this glorious reality of redemption. It gives us a reminder of what is ours through the blood of Christ. He says that, and starting at verse 12, chapter 9, that Christ has entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Again, this is just showing us how great Jesus is, that he's just better. That his blood has accomplished something the blood of bulls and goats could never accomplish. I don't care how many baths you take. Jesus is the ultimate purifier. His blood cleanses us for eternity. Do you ever wonder why Jesus' first miracle is turning water to wine? Because it gets at the heart of exactly what he came to do. It's a reminder of his purpose. It's a beautiful demonstration of what God has planned from before the foundations of the world. The blood of Christ that purifies us. See, we just partook in the Lord's Supper, right? We just had a great moment where we could sit down together as brothers and sisters and we're reminded that the cup represents the blood of Christ, You see, the wine in those jars represents this infinite and abundant provision that Jesus Christ gives to us. Again, he doesn't do this so they can get drunk and have fun. He's trying to point them to a greater reality, something that's just better, the purifying work that was accomplished for us by the blood of Christ shed at Calvary. So we're reminded that Jesus has this wonderful commitment to the Father. We're reminded that Jesus blood is what purifies us ultimately. Finally, we're going to see the role that Jesus plays here, what is represented in these verses. And that's the number three, the all-satisfying role of Christ Jesus, verses 9 through 11. It says, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So somewhere between verses 8 and 9, this water has now become wine. And what did the servants do? Jesus says, draw some out and take it to the headmaster. So that's what they do. And the headmaster is just the maitre d'. He would kind of been like the head waiter, the guy who was kind of overseeing uh, the ceremony, right, how it functions. He was kind of the lead waiter. And verse 9 says that he tasted this water that had now become wine, and he didn't know where it came from. So he tastes it, and he's immediately aware of something, though, that it's different. Hey, man, this isn't what we've been serving all night. This wine is totally different. There's something spectacular about this, and he has no idea where it's come from. Now, you'll notice that there's a parenthetical statement here that says, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So this headmaster didn't know where it came from, but the servants certainly did know. They were well aware of what had just happened. And I think it's important for us to pause here for a moment as well. You see, it was the servants that had filled the jars. It was the servants who had drawn it out. It was the servants who had taken it to the headmaster. Now, they certainly weren't as significant as this headmaster. They didn't get as much recognition as him, for he was the one overseeing this ceremony. But this is a reminder to us that God often uses the mundane 
for the miraculous. See, they were working behind the scenes. It was the servants, not the head waiter, who got to witness this miracle. They were privy to this information. They got to see this display of Christ's divine power. You see, even in their meager efforts through the most routine service, God used this for his glory. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder to us. Do not think that your service is insignificant just because it's behind the scenes, just because you don't stand on a platform, just because it's not exposed to the world. It doesn't make it any less significant. Listen, God uses ordinary obedience for his divine purposes, no matter how obscure it may seem. This is a reminder to us to be faithful with the small things. Whatever God's gifted to you, whatever that looks like, be faithful in that. Be faithful in that. Now, here the head waiter says something about weddings, right? He gives us a little bit of information of how weddings usually function. He says people usually serve the good wine first, and once everyone's drunk freely, then they serve the poor wine. Now, the Greek word that's translated here for drink freely would uh, imply some level of inebriation. However, there is nothing explicitly communicated in this text that would uh, suggest that this celebration had turned into some sort of drunken fiasco. The waiter is simply speaking from his own experience. He's simply sharing, this is what usually happens at weddings, right? You serve the good stuff first and then the poor stuff. Not only that, he's speaking of quality of wine, not necessarily the alcoholic content. You serve the good stuff first and the stuff that isn't as good later. And I think that's a side, a bit of an aside. Let's look at the purpose of what's actually happening here. So the master of this feast calls to the bridegroom to commend him for this wonderful wine that he's provided. I'm sure this dude is probably looking around like me. I provided that. I thought I had gave you all the good stuff I had already. Right. So he goes to the bridegroom and commends him for what he's provided. And again, we have to remember that the groom had the responsibility and providing all of these things. So the, the headmaster is just taken by this. He says, man, this wine is so delicious. It's wonderful. It's sweet, right? It, this wine must have been of the most superior quality because it was created by God, right? It skipped the entire process. It didn't go through the process of fermentation or growing on vines or going through sunlight or any of those things. It came straight from the hand of God. Why would it be anything but pure and satisfying? So again, the master calls to the groom, and again, he says, man, this is wonderful wine. Because he was the one who was supposed to be providing for this wedding feast. Now, we know from the text that he had dropped the ball, hadn't he? Because they had run out of wine. He hadn't planned uh, for the guests that he had. He hadn't planned enough to last for this entire celebration. He had not adequately supplied the provisions necessary for this feast. He'd let the wine run out. What an embarrassing failure on the part of this groom. But this is where we see the glorious role of Christ Jesus, the all-satisfying bridegroom and provider. 
You see, this groom, the one who mismanaged this wedding ceremony, the one who dropped the ball, the one who blundered in the most ridiculous fashion, guess what? He represents each of us. This is me. So I told you at the beginning of this sermon that there were places in this text that challenged me. This is one of them. Because I'm that groom. I drop the ball consistently. I make a mess of things. I'm reminded even this week. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. I know there are times where I fail, where I don't plan accordingly, where I've made a mess of my life. And guess what? Because of our sin, that is each and every one of us, that we've fallen short. But praise God for the one who supplies us eternally, the all-sufficient bridegroom, the one who purifies his bride, the one who covers our failures. Brothers and sisters, what a joy it is to be in covenant with this eternally glorious and capable groom that is Jesus Christ. With the bride of Christ, we are infinitely supplied. We are covered and secured. So I think it's interesting to note, just as this groom received the credit for providing this wine, though he had nothing to do with it. We are credited the righteousness of Christ, though we haven't earned it. We've done nothing to earn it. All the praise and glory go to the bridegroom, our great groom that is Christ Jesus. Listen, there are some wives in this room that are really proud of their husbands, as they should be. And I'm sure there's some brothers in here right now that think they should win husband of the year every year. And maybe you're doing really well. That's great. Guess what? You'll never be the bridegroom that Christ is. You're not the main attraction. It's not about me. If I want to love my wife well, I should point her to the ultimate bridegroom. My job is to prepare her for the return of this groom, to constantly point her to him because that's who it's about. The one who's prepared us and made us presentable before him by washing us with his blood. That's the purpose of marriage. By the way, I think it's wonderful that Jesus' first miracle is performed at a wedding ceremony. That's his blessing on the union of marriage. If you ever question whether God loves marriage, he created it. This is his blessing upon marriage. And this is, again, I had such a hard time with this text this week when I got to this point because it challenged me so deeply. I'm the fool of a groom who didn't provide enough wine for the party, but praise God for his provision. His son, he is worthy of all honor and praise. Listen, we are simultaneously reminded of a husband's duty and our position as the bride of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I think what's wonderful and interesting to note here is we are not without spot or wrinkle. We definitely have our blemishes. 
But because we're washed and bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ, we are presentable before him. It is by his work, his purifying and atoning work, that we can stand before him presented as this bride, ready for the groom, ready for this groom. As we close, verse 11 reminds us, again, of the purpose of this miracle. And it says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, John refers to this as a sign rather than a miracle. That's intentional. That's intentional. See, what's the purpose of a sign? I want you to think about when you're riding down the highway. A sign is supposed to point you somewhere. It's supposed to give you direction, clarity. It's supposed to get you somewhere. Now, this sign is meant to lead us and point us to the overwhelming glory of Christ. John says that this sign manifests Christ's glory. Listen, as we continue to work through the book of John, there will be several signs that we encounter, and each of them serve the exact same purpose. They aren't just significant displays of power. They're given to reveal the glory of Christ Jesus as the Son of God, the one true Messiah, the Savior of the world. Again, ultimately, Christ's glory was revealed in the greatest way on Calvary at the cross and in his resurrection, accomplishing the Lord's purposes and the reason for which he came. Reminded of the purpose of this this provision. John also writes here that it says his disciples believed in him. Now, I don't think John is saying this is the birthplace of their belief because they had already started to follow Jesus. So obviously that would suggest some level of belief. They've laid aside everything else. They're already following Jesus. So I don't think John is saying their faith or belief in Jesus Christ is born here. He's simply saying that this sign helped to solidify it even further. It helped them to understand an even greater reality, to see more of Christ's glory here. But here's the unfortunate reality. Not everybody's going to respond like these disciples. Many will see the signs, but not the glory, right? Think of John chapter 6, which we'll get to in several months probably. Right? Think John chapter 6, uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000. Many saw the sign, but they didn't see the glory. They just wanted more to eat, right? Or even consider the servants in this story. They saw this miraculous transla- uh, transformation from water to wine. Yet the text doesn't tell us that they believed in Jesus or that they followed him. In fact, uh, verse 12 says Jesus left Cana with the same people he came with, his mothers, his brothers, and his disciples. It doesn't say he picked up any new followers, right? So often people see the sign, but they don't see the glory. I don't want that to be anybody in here today. Again, brothers and sisters, I hope that this text has reminded you of the reality of what it means to be the bride of Christ. To see this glorious groom and all of his splendor and majesty. And the way that we respond to that is just like the gospel writers. It's telling the world about this glorious Savior. Making that our mission. Compelled to tell others about the one who's come to save. Church, that's our mission. That's our purpose. 
right? If you're in here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and I have good news for you today, freedom, redemption, forgiveness is possible. This glorious Savior that I've just spent all this time talking about, you have access to him too if you so desire. We can come to him through faith, through faith. If you're hearing you don't know Jesus, my hope is that you would come and see and believe. Listen, the gospel of John is full of this type of language. Think about Philip and Nathaniel last week. Philip goes to him and says, you've got to come and see. It's going to be an encounter in John 4 with the woman at the well where she runs to all the people in her town that she normally would have avoided. She says, come and see the man that told me everything I ever did. Come and see. Again, as I open this sermon, we talked about seeing is believing. I hope and pray about the power of the Holy Spirit, by the preaching of the word of God, your eyes have been opened to a reality that was dead to you prior to this morning, and that you see and that you believe, because Christ Jesus is infinitely glorious. He's just better, and he is worthy. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> you are glorious. You are good. You have provided all things to us by your hand. God, as we are reminded of the truth of these verses here this morning, uh, we see a beautiful picture of Christ Jesus and his atoning work accomplished for each of us. Father, I pray for brothers and sisters in this building this morning, for us as a body of believers, that we would be compelled to share the truth about Jesus Christ to the watching world. But Father, I also pray for those in here this morning that are apart from you, those who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that your spirit would be active and at work in them this morning, doing what only you can do, the supernatural work of a new birth. Lord, opening eyes to see Jesus Christ as all-sufficient, as satisfying, as infinitely glorious. Father, they would see and they would believe. And Lord, that you would get the glory in all of this. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>